If you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew 27 might be a good place to start this morning. And uh, Easter is next week. It's Palm Sunday. Somebody told me that. I was like, how did I forget it was Palm Sunday? And I didn't bring any palms with me. We need to plant a palm tree, Sarah. By our pool that we don't have yet. (laughs) Uh, It was Palm Sunday. Jesus uh, rode into Jerusalem. People shouted, Hosanna, laid their coats down, and laid palm branches in his path. And then later uh, were influenced by the religious leaders to ask for Jesus' crucifixion, not six days later. So be very wary of popularity because it can turn on you quickly. It's unfortunate, but as we look at salvation this week, uh, this month, uh, last week we talked about sin and how bad sin is. We all know how bad sin is, but I'm just making sure everybody understands. Uh, Sin basically is a defiance of our role as a creation of God. Uh, God has rules for how he wants creation to run. He has physical rules which govern uh, particles, uh, laws which we understand in chemistry, biology, and physics. But God also has rules, uh, moral rules for the universe, rules like kindness and love, peace and honesty. And when we sin, we break God's moral rules for this world. So sins are not just some infraction that we make against God, uh, like speeding down the highway or not picking up trash after we miss the trash can. Uh, It's more like warping the fabric of reality to our own hurt. We try to bend God's good creation into something that it's not. And that's a huge problem spiritually, morally, and totally. And until we really grasp how bad sin is, we won't see how good God's solution is. And that's really the purpose in talking about sin, is to point out just really how bad it is, how awful sin is. Because if we see how awful it is, then we see how good really God is as he fixes that awfulness. I don't want us to think that Jesus' whole story, the whole story of Jesus' life, is just a nice motivation tool for us. You know, what would Jesus do? Well, he'd be nice, you know, so act like him. He's kind, so act like him. Sin is not a small problem. It affects us to the very core of our being. So we need a complete overhaul for a solution. And God does offer a good, complete overhaul of a solution. And that's what we're talking about today. The complete overhaul that God wants to do in each of us in order to deal with the problem of sin. And as you look over the whole Bible, anybody here read this whole thing? The whole Bible? Genesis to Revelation? Anybody read the All one of you? Okay, good. <laughs> um, if you read the whole Bible, and I encourage everybody at some point to read through the whole Bible. If you've been a Christian a few years, and you've read through a few books, like I've read Matthew, I've read John, I've read Romans, I've read Genesis, I've read you know a couple books of the Bible, I encourage you at some point to just say, I'm going to read through this whole thing. Because the whole thing is important. God doesn't say, don't worry, you don't have to read Numbers or Leviticus or First and Second Chronicles. Just skip over them and get to the good stuff. He wants you to read the whole thing because the whole thing tells a whole story. And as you read the whole Bible and see the whole story, you will see God dealing with the problem of sin. 
If you read the first chapter of the Bible, what happens in the first chapter of the Bible? God makes everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he made everything, it was good, right? God made the light and saw that it was good. He made the earth and the air, and he made the animals, and he made us. And he said, this is all good. I like this. That's just Genesis 1 and 2, is him making everything and saying, hey, I did a pretty good job. This conforms to what I expect from creation. But then in the third chapter of the Bible, this is what cracks me up. You get to the Bible, and God starts making everything, and it's good. And then he makes people in chapter 2, and then by the very next chapter of the Bible, we start screwing it up. (laughs) It's like three pages into the book, we mess everything up. Human beings sin. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We fall away from God. And the whole rest of the Bible, from page 3 on to the very last page, is God working on solving our problems. Sin is bad and corrupts everything it touches. So we continually make things worse because of our sin. We make societies worse. We make our governments worse. We make our very world worse. And we make our own lives worse through sin. And God continually works with his people and through his people to clean up the problem of sin. And that's what we start seeing in the Old Testament. If you read through the Bible and you get through Genesis, you know, you hear about Abraham and Abraham's kids and you're like, all right, it's the family story. That's cool. And then you get to Exodus. And in Exodus, the nation of Israel is in Egypt and they have a problem. They're in slavery and God brings them out of slavery and into the promised land through uh, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then into Joshua. He brings the people to the promised land. But in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, God starts laying out groundwork for how things should be. Because if you think about it, think about Abraham. He doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't have all these Old Testament commands. All Abraham has is his relationship with God, and God tells him what to do, and Abraham does it. And each person is responsible for their own relationship with God, but they don't have anything codified. They don't have anything written down. They just talk to each other. Hey, do you think God would let us do this? Eh, Probably not. Okay, thanks for the advice. So God says, you know what? I should really have everybody have rules that they follow. And these are moral rules in the Old Testament. You're not getting anything that's surprising. In the books of Exodus and Leviticus, we get very clear rules like don't murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery. Yeah, we know. We're good on those. Those are the basic rules that are laid out in Exodus and Leviticus. Now, there are some also peculiar rules about the food God wants them to eat. But by and large, it's just common sense stuff. Very simple. And if you read the rest of the book, if you read the rest of the Old Testament from Exodus to Malachi, God doesn't really give too much new information. He sends prophets to continually remind the people, hey, by the way, you're supposed to be following the rules. You're not being kind to orphans. You're not being kind to widows. You might want to change your behavior. You're not worshiping God alone and sticking with him. You're kind of going off into other religions. That's not good. Come back to the rules, the basic, the center of it. That's all the prophets do. If you read the prophets, they're continually going to people and saying, 
Just keep doing what God told you at the beginning, guys. Come on. Let's act right. And they become, God sends them in time, uh, the prophets in times of Israel's history when things aren't going so well. And they're not going well because they're not doing what's in the book. And the prophets say, hey, you know how things aren't going so well? Yeah, they're pretty terrible. Well, do what's in the book. All right, that, that's important. Just do the rules and everything works. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know, however many times God does that, the people still don't listen. They'll come and they'll follow the rules for like a day and then be like, ah, this is, this is difficult, and then fall away again. Joshua, Judges, the time of the kings, the exile, the post-exilic community. They just keep falling back in the patterns of sin. And if you read what happens in the prophets, you know the people can't follow the rules and end up not following the rules. So God starts talking to the prophets. The prophets go to the people and say, hey, just follow the rules, guys. And the people say, okay, yeah, we'll do it for a little bit, and then they fall away again. So God starts talking to the prophets. He talks to Isaiah, he talks to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all these guys. If you read through the books, God says to them, you know what? These people should be following my rules, but they're not. So I'm going to send somebody to deal with this. And it's a very common theme. He says it to Moses, and he says it to every single prophet after Moses. I will send somebody to deal with this. And there are hints in each prophetic book about one to come, God's chosen one who will deal with sin. God says, I'm going to send somebody. He's going to solve the problem and it's going to fix sin. And pay attention for when he shows up because he's very important. Right? We've read the Bible. We know this. And again, if you've read the Bible, you know who that guy is. It's Jesus. There we go. Easy church answer. (laughs) When Jesus shows up, he comes to deal with the problem of sin. He makes that very clear early, early in his ministry. Which is why he says things like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is in John 3. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's talking to Nicodemus. And he's making it very clear to people. I'm the guy who's going to deal with sin. And the rest of the New Testament... As you go on from Jesus' ministry, if you look, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus' life. Acts tells the story of the history of the church, and Paul's letters and the other general epistles is what they're called, um, tell the story of what the church does. And the whole book of Acts, as well as all the epistles, deal with the fallout of what Jesus has accomplished in his life. That's all the New Testament is. Jesus has come and dealt with sin. Now what do we do? And basically, you can split the Bible up into two very simple yet profound sections. In the Old Testament, we have the preparation for Christ. Christ being the term Messiah, which means anointed one. It's preparation for the one to come who's going to deal with sin. The Old Testament is nothing but preparation. Get ready. Here's what he's going to do. He's coming to solve your problems. Prepare for him. And the New Testament is the presentation of Christ. Here's what we need to do now that Jesus has come to take care of sin. And that ripples out from where Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem, throughout all Israel and Judah, around the world. We are beneficiaries of the early church. But what Jesus has done is the central element 
of what the Bible is about. The whole book literally hinges on what Jesus accomplishes. And it's kind of funny because we have a saying, X marks the spot. Um, And all a cross is, Jesus died on the cross, all a cross is is an X shifted 45 degrees. So in the Bible, X marks the spot. Jesus and the cross are the central event of the Bible. So what we're talking about today, what we're examining, what we're looking at is how does the cross deal with the problem of sin? And I'd like to tackle this in two parts. First, I want to look at what happened to Jesus on the cross. And second, I want to look at how that deals with sin. Because both halves give us a whole picture of how God finally addresses the sin problem. So what happened to Jesus on the cross? What did Jesus endure on the cross? And when we say the cross, we really mean the passion, suffering, and death of Jesus. Not just when they nailed him to the cross, but it's literally everything around that is the cross. It's a term for all the bad stuff that happened to Jesus on the last day of his life. He had a pretty bad last day of life. But the suffering and death of Jesus is laid out in Matthew 26 and 27. And it starts in chapter 26. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 26, you can see um, all the things that go on in the last day of Jesus. And it really starts back in the Last Supper. Jesus tells his disciples very clearly everything that's going to happen. He's, he's like, I'm going to die. They're going to they're going to kill me, and you're all going to desert me. And Peter's like, no, I'll never desert you. And Jesus is like, yeah, right, buddy. And then Judas leaves for some reason in the middle of the meal. They don't know why. But he spends time with his friends. He washes their feet, tells them what's to come, and then says, hey, let's go pray. Goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Leaves, the not, leaves eight of them and says, uh, Peter, James, and John, come with me to pray. And then goes even apart from them, goes to his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and says, I'm going to go pray. I need you guys to pray too. So he goes and prays and comes back and finds them asleep. So Jesus is um, praying through the night. I don't know if you've ever made that connection, but from the Last Supper on Thursday night to Friday morning, Jesus did not sleep. He spent the time praying, and he spent the time getting ready for what was to come. Uh, But the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, the denial of Peter, the repentant thief on the cross, uh, these are important in Jesus' suffering and death. And you can focus on the individual event on the Stations of the Cross if you come on Good Friday. I strongly encourage you guys to come. We've had uh, Bible passages. Uh, Chris has written some devotionals. Patty has written some. John wrote one. um, And I wrote the rest (laughs) Uh, we would like, I would like you to come and just sort of reflect on what Jesus did. Uh, but in a nutshell, there are three things that go on in Jesus' crucifixion. He's rejected by man, he is scourged and crucified, and he dies. I want, to look at these, I want to look at these events individually because they play a part in the cross. The cross basically consists of these things. And I say he's re- Jesus is rejected by man. And I say man in sort of a general sense, because everybody rejected Jesus. Okay? It wasn't just the religious leaders. It was the religious leaders. It was the political leaders. It was his friends. Peter denied Jesus. The disciples all left him and fled. Jesus did all of this alone. Not a single person sticks by his side as he's crucified. Yeah, John and his mom are there watching from a distance, but everybody deserts Jesus. 
Look at what it says here. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor, Pilate, said to them, which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. So this is six days after Palm Sunday. When they're like, yay, Jesus is going to come overturn the Romans. The people are turned by the religious leaders to all reject Jesus. The religious leaders reject him. The political leaders reject him. Even Peter denies him. Peter was Jesus' best friend, and Peter denied knowing him. Think about how terrible it would be to have everyone abandon you in your darkest hour. Because every single person here says, man, when I was going through a rough patch, so-and-so was there to help me. When it was, I was dealing with this major issue in my life, I was dealing with this breakup, I was dealing with this sin, I was dealing with whatever, there was somebody who stood by, who stood by my side, who helped me, who supported me, right? And even if you didn't have a person stand by you, you still had God by your side. Here Jesus is going through it by himself. He did it all alone. Everything he accomplished on the cross, he did himself. So Jesus is rejected by people and he is also scourged and crucified. Matthew 27, 26. Uh, Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Uh, And Jesus actually here, this is what we think of when we think of Jesus' suffering. He actually takes physical punishment upon himself. Now the Roman government Ever, anybody here uh, hear that Jesus took for us the 39 lashes, the 39 stripes? That's, in Jewish law, in the Old Testament, they said you can't whip somebody 40 times. So whenever they whipped somebody, they stopped at 39 just to make sure they didn't get to 40 because they might have miscounted one. So they stopped at 39 because if you're whipping somebody and you lose count, then you, you, know, you do 41, then you've broken the Old Testament. So they stopped at 39 just in case they missed a, a whip somewhere. But Jesus wasn't whipped by the Jews, okay? He wasn't whipped under Jewish law. He was whipped and scourged under Roman law. What was the Roman jurisdiction for scourging people, for flogging people? There was none. If they died when you flogged them, that's what happened. There are stories in Roman times where they would whip people and actually rip open their stomach and their guts would fall out and they would die. It's gross, but when we read They scourge Jesus. We really don't grasp that. And I'm going to come back to it here. The Roman government has Jesus scourged and crucified because the Jewish leaders viewed him as a threat. The very people who should have recognized him. The Jewish leaders who had been reading the Old Testament and said, hey, pay attention for this guy who's coming to deal with sin. He's going to be awesome. They see Jesus and they reject him because he's going to overthrow their system. Which is kind of why God sent him. But Jesus actually physically shed his blood. We talk about the blood of Jesus. Jesus physically shed his blood here. Through violent, horrible acts done to him. And we hear that Jesus is whipped, but Jesus wasn't whipped. Whips would have been nicer than what they did to Jesus. He was scourged. In Romans, when they whipped people, they used a flog which had bone and nails and glass in it. Okay? So it's not ow, that whip hurts. It's, this is literally tearing my skin off. If if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, you know how bad this was. 
And that movie catches a lot of flack for how violent it was. They're like, oh, it's such a gory, bad movie. It's like, yes, but we don't, we don't scourge people anymore. We live in the United States. No cruel and unusual punishment, right? This is cruel. It's not unusual for the time, but it's very cruel. And we have pictures of people. What, we can think about what it's like for Jesus to be flogged. We have pictures like this one where Jesus is whipped. Like, I mean, like he's, not, he's, not, he's hardly beat up in that one. You've seen the Passion. They literally whipped your back, and then when they were done, they flipped you over and whipped you on the front. He received terrible physical punishment on himself. And then after he was scourged, after he was whipped and flogged, which is bad enough, he was crucified. They literally nailed his body to a cross. And public execution in Roman days was actually, this is going to sound sick, was a form of entertainment in Roman times. They didn't have TV. They couldn't load up YouTube. Hey, let's go watch the public execution. And if you were crucified, and this, is, this, this will put something in context for the Bible, uh, when they crucified you, it would take days for you to die. Okay, this wasn't a, they crucify you and you die an hour later. This is, they crucify you, and the point of crucifixion is when they nail your feet and your arms out, you basically, it's not death through bleeding, it's death through suffocation. Because when they put your feet and arms together, you have no place to push up except on the nails that are going through your feet in order for you to push up to breathe. So you have to, you hang there, and then you got to breathe, which hurts, and then you hang there again, which still hurts. And people would stand there and watch these people and laugh at these people and mock these people who were dying by crucifixion because it was entertainment. Roman times weren't great, guys. <laughs> the Colosseum, public crucifixions, it's just not great. But people would watch and then come back days later. They would take bets on who was going to die first. But Jesus was crucified to show all of his followers what was coming for them too. Peter, James, John, you want to follow Jesus? This is what's coming. This is what would happen to those who defy Rome and the Jewish system. You want to be a hero like Jesus? You're going to share his faith. We don't, get, we don't understand. In the first century, they would say, oh, he was flogged and crucified? They knew. They would have walked by people who had been crucified. Their children would have been like, kids, don't look at that. That guy's dying. Mommy, why is he bleeding? Just be quiet and keep walking. <laughs> they knew what happened. Us, we have no idea. But finally, Jesus is flogged. Jesus is rejected. Jesus is nailed to a cross. And finally, he dies. Matthew 27. 45 to 46 and verse 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And Jesus here takes the ultimate spiritual punishment upon himself. This is what God told Adam and Eve would happen to them in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. God says, if you sin, you will die. So when Jesus deals with sin, he dies as a result of it. Let me tell you something. Sin didn't kill Jesus. In fact, nothing could kill Jesus. Jesus would have potentially stayed on that cross forever because Jesus, as the author of life, as God himself in human flesh, couldn't die. 
You can't kill God. But in dealing with sin, Jesus was a sacrifice for sin. And since sin merits death, so in dealing with sin, he has to die. And as a result, he laid down his life so that sin could die with him. And let me be clear here. 100% Jesus died. This isn't a fake death. It says in uh, some Gnostic uh, versions of Christianity, which if you don't know what that is, don't bother looking into it. And in Islam, they say Jesus only looked like he died on the cross and that God put somebody else up there and made him look like Jesus. That's not what happened. Jesus actually physically died on the cross. And he died the same death that, all, that will claim all of us someday. I hope you're starting to grapple with the issue of your own mortality. But someday you're going to die. And Jesus has died too, so he knows what it's like. But his is a far bigger deal for mankind. But it's the same death that he faced. Now as we look at what happened with Jesus on the cross, it's very clearly an ordeal. Like this does not seem like enjoyable at all. No one would want to go through this. It seems miserable and awful and terrible. He's rejected by man and tortured. He's nailed to a cross. He dies. And it's awful and horrible and he did it alone. Now when we see what happened to Jesus, it all looks so horrible and we think, why? What kind of God would do that to anybody? At some point as you grapple with your faith, as at some point you grapple with what Jesus did, you have to say, what kind of God would do that to anybody? Because that's really the question here. Why does this have to be so terrible? And how does that deal with our sin problem? You have to grapple with these issues because if not, then you're just sort of, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, whatever. You really need to sit there and say, why did Jesus have to do this? And I'm sure many Christians ask the same question because Paul addresses it in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 to 22. He's talking about Jesus. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So Paul here is explaining what happened at the cross from the Holy Spirit's perspective. This is not an attempt to try to figure out why Jesus did what he did. This is God speaking through Paul, telling us clearly what happened. God's keeping the main thing, the main thing. He's focusing on Jesus. He died for you to take care of your sins. And let me explain that for you. And the Spirit here is telling us how. In this passage, he uses some important phrases to describe what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He reconciled us to God. You see that in verse 19. Now see, we were at odds with God because of sin. We rebelled against him. But Jesus, in dying on the cross, actually made peace between us. He made God and us able to be in the same room together. We were reconciled. He got rid of our sin so God could justly accept us. And he made peace between us and God. And this is another way of saying he reconciled us. Before there was a war. There was a war between us and God. We were fighting against God. And now there's no more fighting. The sides have made peace. And Jesus is the one who made that peace. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. And finally, it says he presented us holy and blameless before him. 
When he takes our sins away, we are left clean and holy. It's as if we never sinned. We are blameless before God. And that's important because we can have an unhindered, unimpeded relationship with God. Now, how does he do all these things? It says here he made peace through the blood of his cross and in his body of flesh by his death. And the core idea here is that his shed blood and death somehow removes our sin. Well, got rid of our sin to make peace, but how did he do that? Isaiah 53. Love this passage. Isaiah 53 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. We talked about this for healing. Uh, we talked about healing. Verses 5 to 6 really explains what went on in the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at the words he uses. He was wounded. He was crushed. He was chastised. He was striped, stripped, stripes, striped, healed, or scourged. And the details sound like they were a very bad time for someone. It sounds like the person here is beaten and killed. And they were beaten and killed for our transgressions, for our iniquities, for our peace, and for our healing. And verse 6 really explains that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what happened during Jesus' suffering and death is very simple. God the Father took our sins. God literally... This is what God did. He took all of our sins and put them on Jesus. During Jesus' suffering and death. So Jesus took all, God took, the Father took our sins, put them on Jesus, and then punished Jesus for our sins. So this allows God to be both just and merciful. He is just because he's still giving out the punishment for sin. He said, all of your sin, everything that you've done wrong deserves to be punished. So I'm going to take it, I'm going to put it on Jesus, and I'm going to punish Jesus for your sins. So God is just because he said sin deserves death and punishment, so I'm punishing Jesus for your sins. And we see how merciful God is because God takes that upon himself. Jesus voluntarily did this. And at the cross, we can see really how Trinitarian our God is. Both the Father and Son play very different roles on the cross. The Son voluntarily gives himself as a sacrifice for sin. And in the book of Revelation, it says, Jesus was the lamb, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Which means, before creation even happened, before Genesis 1 happened, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit said, hey, let's make something. And God goes, Father, Son, Holy Spirit said, hey, let's make something. They said, that's a great idea. And Jesus said, hey, you know what? They're going to sin. But before we even make them, I'll say, I'll deal with the sin problem. And the Father goes, that sounds great. And the Holy Spirit's like, man, you're awesome. So before we were even made, they saw what was going to happen and decided they would deal with our sin before we even sinned. Because they love us so much. So the Son voluntarily gives himself as a sacrifice for sin and the Father is the one who pours out the wrath of the Trinity on the Son on behalf of sin. The two perform very distinct functions at the cross. And each is necessary and each is important for our salvation. And when we look at what happened to Jesus on the cross, there's a theological term for it. It's called the atonement. And it centers on the word reconciled that Paul uses in Colossians 1. In the atonement, Jesus made peace between God and us. 
He reconciled us. He made us at one. At one meant. English joke on the Latin term. And the atonement on Jesus' death on the cross is the central element of our faith. It's what makes Christianity distinct from every other religion in the world. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross is what makes us unique. Because every single other religion on earth is do. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, look at any other religion. It's do this, give this, volunteer, do you know, go do these things. And if you do these things, maybe God will think you're good enough. Every single other religion, do this, do this, do this. You'll assure yourself a spot in heaven with 70 virgins, or you'll have a better life in the next life, or you'll reach nirvana or whatever. Do all these things, and maybe God will think you're okay. That's every single other religion except Christianity. Every other religion says do, Christianity says done. Everything has already been accomplished by Jesus. Sin is taken care of. You literally don't have to worry about your sin anymore. You ever think about that? You don't have to worry about your sin. You don't have to try to atone for your sin. You don't have to try to do good deeds to make up for your sin. Jesus already took care of it, which means you don't have to feel bad about your sin anymore. You just need to go to him and say, I need some more help getting ahead of myself. Sin is taken care of. The relationship with God is healed. We are reconciled to God because of what Jesus did. What did we sing last week as the closing song? Anybody remember? Jesus paid it all. All to him I own. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And all that's left. We don't have to do anything, guys. This is at the core of our faith. Christians, it's not about coming to church. It's not supporting Chick-fil-A. It's not about singing songs. It's not about reading your Bible. At the very core of it, when you distill Christianity to its central element, it's saying that Jesus, I trust that you died for my sins and that's going to change my life. That's it. And if we don't do that, then we're really not Christians. You can go to church your whole life and not be a Christian. You can read the Bible a million times and not be a Christian. Until you say to Jesus, I trust that you are dealing and have dealt with my sin and you're giving me a new life, that's it, baby. All that's left for us is to agree with God and what he has already done and say, okay, that's not doing, on it. That's not doing anything. That's just getting on board with what God has already done. And as we conclude, there are two things I'd like to bring out. First is that God does all the work and we just get on board with him. And this is not just at salvation, which was started by God, but at every single step of our walk with God, we get on board with him. He's the shepherd. We are the? We, he's the vine. We are the? He's the king. We are the? People, servants, pick your word. <laughs> if we are to be good followers of Jesus, we must, we must realize the primacy of his place. We are saved by God's work on our behalf. And we will only grow and mature in our faith by God's work in us. He wants it for us and he will accomplish it. And all we are to do is to bring ourselves in alignment with him. And secondly, in this life, be careful that you do not stray too far from the cross. 
The cross is something we must continually come back to because it reminds us of how mighty and how strong our God is. And it reminds us of how utterly dependent we are on him. There's an old hymn whose chorus fits very well here. I wish I could sing because I would sing it, but I don't want to put you guys through that. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. As we come back to the cross and remember what Jesus has done, the price he paid to reconcile with us, we can be confident that we can get through anything. If Jesus is willing to do this for us, how much more will he do everything else? If he's going to take care of our salvation, we don't got to worry. We don't got to fret. He'll take care of it. So maybe this week, maybe in your time of prayer, meditate on the cross. Sit down and reflect on it. See the punishment that our sins deserve. And then see the loving God who takes that punishment himself. And if he's willing to do that, how much more will he do for us now? He's already shown us. He's like, guys, I get you whatever you need. I'm watching out for you. He really does like us. And maybe an excellent, excellent, ah, tongue-tied, an excellent way to meditate on the cross will be here on Good Friday. Um, I'm planning on it being simple. I I think it's going to be pretty simple, but hopefully meaningful in its simplicity as we reflect on different things that Jesus went through. Rejection by people. Rejection by his friends. Judgment that he didn't deserve. Physical punishment that he didn't deserve, but he took for us. And that he died and was buried for us. So I'm going to encourage you guys to this Friday come and reflect on the cross and what God has done. And with that, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for all that you've done on the cross for us. Jesus, you are good, you are amazing, and we love you. We thank you that you have paid the ultimate price so that we can have that relationship with you. And as we look forward to next week, Lord, we realize this story is not over. But help us to remember the cross, help us to cherish that old rugged cross, and to continually draw strength from you. Lord, you have shown that you will stop at nothing to chase after us, to pursue us, and to help us. And for each person here, for our worries, for our fears, for our concerns of this life, help us to place them at the foot of the cross and to realize that you will take care of them. Thank you for the good that you're doing in the lives of the people here. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.